Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to Space the Nation. And if you're listening to this episode, you probably know our deal. I don't think you're going to come in cold to this one. <laughs> this should not be the first podcast. This should not be the first episode of this podcast you listen to. We can make some recommendations. I, I'm Daniel Dresser, and I'm telling you, if this is the first time listening to this, you're making a mistake. Listen to a different episode. <laughs> Actually, Dan, what should they listen to first? I would say maybe one of the Dune episodes. Those were I still think Moonfall was our peak. Like, I, okay. I love our Moonfall episode. Moonfall might be episode. our peak. Yes. Okay. Yes. Moonfall, we, we had so much dunes. fun doing that. Yes, the Dunes. The Alien. good. Yeah. Yeah. episode oh, maybe definitely. both alien it, episodes alien or aliens yes yeah the strange start world there world. yeah yeah yep, yep. that's a good one so yep. start there mm-hmm. and now if you're still with us welcome welcome hi hopefully you're also part of the discord if you're listening this far if you're listening this far and you aren't a patron or part of the discord become one because then you get access to this kind of randomness <laughs> all the time <laughs> Sorry. It's it okay. made Dan laugh so hard he started me, coughing. Maybe so hard after started coughing. There's <laughs> nothing. There's nothing better if you're interested in sci-fi than randomness. I mean, that is That's, that is true. Yeah. Okay, so we asked for questions and a few of you really stepped up. Oh, Several yeah. of you submitted multiple questions. We are not going to be biased against the people that were especially enthusiastic, and we will try to get to the multiple questions from the people that sent multiple questions. Right. So we're going to organize this. We're going to start with the questions that were sent that were actually sort of sci-fi related. In other words, consistent with what the theme of the podcast is. And then we'll go to the IR related ones. There's exactly one. (laughs) And then we'll answer all the rest of them because I think we'll be able to do it in our, you know, allotted hour as it were. Yes. Yes. Okay, so Dan, to start, we have a few questions from Nate M42. These okay. came via the Discord. Mm-hmm. The first one is, are your science fiction and fantasy tastes heavily science fiction as opposed to fantasy, or is that just the podcast? So my answer is, is it's pretty science fiction-y, not so much with the fantasy. In fact, I actually think Game of Thrones might have been like the first fantasy thing that actually felt engaging to me. Um, and I, I mean, I think there's a couple of reasons for this. One might just be, again, the idiocy of sibling rivalry, which is my brother was very much into science fantasy as a kid. And so like, I don't know, it just for some reason didn't really work for me all that well. Another reason might be that I'm a kind of a non, I'm more of a nonfiction reader to tell you the truth than a fiction reader. And so hard sci-fi, I think probably is a little more close to nonfiction than not. And so there's that element. I think the better question for me is whether, frankly, as a Trekkie, I'm a social science fantasy guy. Um, <laughs> that, you know, get it, get it on it. But like, you know, like I, I think I one, do of, get it. one of the reasons I like Trek <laughs> is, you know, it's a nice social science fantasy. It's that, hey, everything got sorted out pretty much. And yes, there are wars and so forth. But, you know, within the Federation, it's pretty good, actually. Yeah, the the big tension in the Trek universe is how can we restore things being great? Right, exactly. Yeah, and how can things be great for more people? Right, and these are valid questions, and you know, like there's lots of conflict. And it suggests that communism can work. All right, let's not, not, uh, you had to tug at that one thread. We'll move on. Well, yes, what about you, Anna? What is your answer to this question? I definitely read more fantasy than you do, clearly. I am actually currently binging The Witcher which I had resisted for a while because it looked really cheesy. (laughs) And my 
you know, bite-sized review of it is that it is kind of cheesy, but that it knows it's kind of cheesy. And that it's not so cheesy that it's distracting, like the special effects aren't like, you know, Xena right. level yeah. or anything. Yeah. And Henry Cavill is fun to watch. She's, you know, and, and he does this weird ironic version of like a fantasy hero. Hmm. <laughs> One of his main pieces of dialogue is always, hmm. <laughs> That's my kind of hero, frankly. Yeah, I think you might like it. I will. The first yeah. like three episodes are really slow and you probably can skip them. Oh, okay, good. But. Time. Anyway, and I'm also, I just finished up a fantasy series. I know I can't remember what it was, but I think this, from, for me, this traces back to the first genre books I really loved. Which were? The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Oh. The Narnia series. So, and that's fantasy. <laughs> totally fair, yeah. But then, um, you know, my second love was Star Trek. So mm-hmm. I think I just come at it pretty equally, like... Because of the show, I've probably in the past few years read more science fiction than Same. fantasy, but some fantasy books have gotten me through really tough times. To me, that they're more escapist. So when things are down for me, sometimes I gravitate towards rereading favorite fantasy books. Mm-hmm. I call them like doorstoppers, you know, like the <laughs> yes. ones that are just like just intense world building. Right. Like they just spend pages and pages and pages of world building, not like Tolkien level. With, Which, like, languages and songs and stuff. Yes. Reading Tolkien... <laughs> Short was, of that. <laughs> I gotta say, reading Tolkien was always fascinating to me, because, like, I, I, I admittedly, I, part of it is that I came to him as an adult, reading it to my kids. But I was like, I've never read something where, like, the setup stuff is the most plotting stuff imaginable, and I'm like, oh my God, will you just stop preparing for camp and just get the hell out of wherever you're, you know, and like start hiking or whatever. And then when he gets to the action sequences, they're amazing. Like it's the only time, like I think it's the first time I like remember reading something thinking it's almost like watching it on on a screen. It was, it, you know, it's incredibly gripping. It's just, it's a, re- it's a weird combination, but it's maybe because I came to it as an adult. So second question from Nate M42, mm-hmm. which currently popular science fiction or fantasy will age poorly like the moon is a harsh mistress and why so my answer here which some mildly contradicts what i said before is actually well i got the same answer i have an answer Go ahead. i was my answer was actually going to be star trek discovery interesting yeah because star trek discovery is such a millennial show in that sense, it's it, it it is interesting, and I think as time passes, it will be interesting almost as a period piece about what were people like in the late twenty teens and early twenty twenties. Um, mm-hmm. But like, I've never seen a Star Trek show where the characters are this emotional. Um, <laughs> and it and it, it is interesting to. Compa- and this isn't the problem with Strange New Worlds. No, and that's exactly yeah. the point. Like Strange New Worlds. There's emotions, but like it's, you know, it, it's a different vibe. There's no other way to put it. Whereas like in Discovery, you know, it's like people constantly having like inner turmoil. And and that's, I think one of the distracting things about the show is that the show is much more about the inner lives of the crew as opposed to the actual adventure. And I think a good Star Trek show combines both of these in equal portions. Discovery leans so far over onto the, you know, crew stuff that it actually like it i've got one more season to get through and it's been a drag i'm not gonna lie (laughs) i've just resisted it it's just not i I, for some reason the 
original series is my favorite Mm -hmm. and it's the only one i've ever really been a huge fan of like Mm -hmm. my mom really loved the picard like era oh that oh oh you mean next generation yeah yeah next generation well next generation is fabulous i I think because she's i think she was always kind of like I think Picard. <laughs> I think she Patrick Stewart. Picard. She had a Patrick. <laughs> Short version. I, I think he actually had I, to do. I, you know, and, Patrick and Stewart. And I don't think your mom should be himself. blamed for that. Patrick Stewart <gasps> oh, does. No, 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 yeah, no, no. Yeah. He's amazing. He's yeah, like, yeah, he's, yeah. he was a silver fox before there were silver foxes. Exactly. Yeah. My answer, I think, has already been proven to be true, which is Game of Game Thrones. Game of Thrones. Yeah, I was going to say. That sex position stuff <laughs> and the telling story through rape already looks bad like it 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 was barely tolerable at the time like there were people talking i don't there were people saying it was problematic at that time yeah right oh no i always think like weirdly i think the best criticism of that show and like what i think it actually changed the nature of the show was that snl skit where i don't know if you've ever i'm sure you've seen this it was like it was a mock-up of like behind the scenes of hbo and you see hbo game of thrones is the creation of two people one george r r martin and second a 13 year old boy and <laughs> it cuts to andy samberg playing this kid saying my job is to get as many boobs into the show as possible <laughs> it is a genius genius critique of the show and like i could never watch it in quite the same way after that skit it was incredibly well done the whiteness of the show will also not age so well because i think people have finally kind of realized that if you're setting something in a completely imaginary universe, mm-hmm. you don't need to kind of obey however our history played out with, you know, colonization. Yeah, like, although I do think that the show, I mean, how would I put this? The show lacks black characters. There's no denying that. But I think as, as seasons passed, you did start seeing other. Right. And I'm know, saying yeah. like the like even the early season, what that shows that they were showing it. Yeah, and I'm yeah, saying yeah. like. Right now, like even with uh, House of the Dragon, like you have right characters you have Targaryens color, like, or, yeah. right away, and yeah. of course it doesn't make any sense, really. <laughs> but that's okay. That's fine. It's, it's magic. There are yeah. dragons. Yeah, like totally why fair. not? Yes. <laughs> and I remember actually the first time I read that critique, where it was like, "Why are we pretending that this universe had the same exact exact like colonization pattern as our universe?" Like. I have less of a problem. I mean, I understand, like, the. it's not that I have, don't have a problem with diversity on the show, but, like, part of the reason, let me put it this way, part of the reason Game of Thrones worked for me to the extent it did was that it was clearly borrowing from yeah. 16th no, it, century England and transposing into this borrow thing. and then be like, maybe there were some people of color, too. Like, maybe things didn't work out quite so badly for what that's <laughs> for totally the African fa- continent as it did in the real world. No, and I think that's totally fair. Um <laughs> You Although know? one, well, in some ways they did do that. Like one of the things that's interesting is that Westeros is the is the place where slavery is considered an abomination. Yes. You know, yes. so in some sense, Therefore, they I think there head. probably should be whatever equivalent Africans. There should have been more of them. Yeah. yeah. You know. Also, it's not clear that slavery was race based. I believe. Right. right. In Westeros. Anyway. The other the other weird thing about Game of Thrones, I'm just I, I, this is going to okay. come up clearly again in House of the Dragon is, God damn, they seem obsessed with incest, and like. You're right. That's it, probably also well. I don't think we can say incest ages badly. Incest is always incest has always been bad. But like, I'm not sure why the show is so obsessed with that. It's like, I believe that is being true to George R. R. Martin's vision. vision. I guess so. Yeah. Fair enough. He seems okay. like kind of a fucked up guy. Just completely <laughs> transparent. Like, you know, I really enjoyed like the first two books. I think. Mm-hmm. 
And then, I mean, I think it's pretty recognized. They start to. Kinda, I couldn't even make it through the first book yeah. to tell you the truth. But I, you know, I they, actually really liked the first one. Yeah. Like it, Mm-hmm. I, I I genuinely would you like, I might it. read yeah. it again. Yeah. All right. So moving on uh, from executive otaku, right. which I believe has a meaning that's supposed to be funny that I'm going to confess. I do not know. Same favorite, good or bad. Your choice. Example of sci-fi being used in IR. Good like zombies in IR or bad like the Bush era. The Empire was right. Articles, for instance. So. Anna, you might be mad at me. I'm going to question the premise of this and actually defend the contrarian <laughs> Empire was right I'm essays. I'm always a little mad at you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, let me this way. It's not that I agree with, like, like I, I mean, and this is interesting. There was a, this sort of brand of criticism emerged in the early, t- during the Bush era, it's true. It was a combination of the Empire was right or Harry Potter was a dumb jock, which was, I, I yeah. don't can't remember who wrote that for Slate, but it was a genius article. And I actually like these pieces. It's not that I agree with them, but they are legitimately provocative and actually offer an interesting angle on this content, as it were, in such a way that I actually think it freshened up the debate. And I actually do think in some ways some of these critiques actually percolated, you know, all the way up to the creators of of these sagas. So, you know, like I I don't think those were bad. I actually thought they were usefully provocative and I'm not going to, you know, they, they offered an interesting perspective. In terms of like, you know, good use of sci-fi and IR, if we're talking about policymakers using sci-fi, I think the winner has to be War Games, which is, I think, qualifies as a sci-fi movie. And, you know, oh, yeah. 1983 We film, should do it. Yeah, we should. Oh, God, that would be great. Love, uh, I love War Games. But, like, the point is, is that in the movie, you know, there's an a like a, an elemental AI that apparently gets hacked into and starts running a uh, war simulation that no one realizes is a simulation. But one of the interesting things about that movie is that it actually did cause the Reagan administration and Reagan to ask, wait a minute, how vulnerable are we to this kind of cyber attack? And there had been officials who were trying desperately to get the DOD and the White House to understand this was actually a problem. We need to ensure that this doesn't happen. And weirdly enough, I think the movie actually led to this. And um, Fred Kaplan has written a couple of books about, not on this specifically, but in his books, the the effect of war games is felt on this. Anna, what about you? I think hands down, like the Star Wars missile defense system is probably <laughs> the worst adaptation of, into real policy of a very good science fiction text. <laughs> but is that, all right, so here are, here's my question. Is that really Star Wars' fault? Like, it's not like... No, we, no, 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 it's yeah. not. I'm not saying yeah. it's Star Wars' fault at all. I'm no, 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 but like, it's, it's not even that Star Wars had missile defense. That's the weird part about about all of that. Like, it was just, right, but, call, it was called Star Wars, yeah, yeah. And also, I believe that the, the thinking about it was, like, it was from a science fiction book, right? Like Thor's Hammer or whatever. Huh. There's a science fiction background to it. Probably, yeah. Anyway, I also like it when people write think pieces of using science fiction text to explain politics. Although right. it's funny, like I I always ex- tell people that that's not what this show is. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yes. Like we're not going through and being like, this person represents Bush and yeah. this person represents Trump. And that's one of the reasons why, like, I r- really hesitate for us to do, say, The Boys, because... Mm-hmm. It's, it's obvious. so transparent yeah. that it would it would be difficult to discuss the sort of underlying policy matrixes, you know, like the kind of IR that's happening. Is, right. 
there's you, too much. It's all on the surface. There's not as it's all on the surface, and there's yeah. probably stuff going on underneath as well, like you know mm-hmm. alliances and whatnot. But mm-hmm. it's just so transparent, which I couldn't decide if I liked or not when I was watching it. I, I recently finished binging it. Oh, you finished it. So is it worth watching seasons two and three? Let me ask you this. Because I watched season one, which I th- which I did like, but like I it watched the does first- improve. Okay, okay, and it's sort of a question. I think I said it, I put it this way to you before, which is I couldn't decide if I liked it or was fascinated by it. <laughs> and yes. there's a subtle difference. Yeah, but I did no, I watch it. all three seasons. Some of the performances are fantastic and make it worthwhile. Carl Urban as the head of the boys mm-hmm. is really good. Just a really magnetic actor in yeah. a. In a role where he gets to both choose scenery and have some more subtle interactions as and, well. And also, I think, actually use his real accent, which was... Right, right. You know, I always forget Carl Urban is not American, because he has a really good American accent, but he's so actually Kiwi. It, it, it's enjoyable, but, like, it's so fucking dark. Like, yeah. It's, it is... It's kind of, it's difficult. Yeah. No, I agree. <laughs> I'm surprised it succeeded in the time period that it succeeded. It's a dark it's a age, dark. Anna. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I really, I don't know if this quite addresses this question, but I want to just mention it, which is that there is kind of a very specific subgenre <laughs> of science fiction that's propaganda for right-wing, you know, politics. Um <laughs> And it's maybe not even fair to the question, but I just like mentioned like the Turner Diaries, you know, which is where Timothy McVeigh got his ideas. And then I went on a tear not too well, it's actually a while ago now that there is actually on (laughs) Amazon, there is a subgenre of post-apocalyptic Christian science fiction, which I just saw that title and I was like, (laughs) intrigued. what what could that be? And there are multiple books in that category. And I read some of them and they're awful <laughs> okay <laughs> so i'll just uh, and also glenn beck has, a, has some science fiction oh yeah so, yeah i think he's i think i have yeah. one of them i think he wrote it i think it's called agenda 21 about um, that is right it's about the yeah. u.n agenda 21 yes it, it yep. really is in retrospect laughable the idea that the u.n actually was this powerful agency i do love that in retrospect that is that is my favorite sort of like ah, you sweet summer children kind of thing <laughs> about the right wing yes moving on we have a question from zach Oh, Dan, do you want to pronounce that last name or should I? I'm going to assume it's Gabal. Gabal. Zach Gabal. Very simple question. Spaceballs or Galaxy Quest? Got a very simple answer. It's Galaxy Quest. Uh, I agree. I mean... You know, it's not that... And and by the way, let's be clear. It's not that I don't like Spaceballs. Spaceballs is perfectly fine. The difference is is that Spaceballs is a parody. And, you know, in... Whereas Galaxy Quest is actually a real movie in that there are characters and there's and it's an arc. an homage. Yeah, it's an homage. And it's also a movie that loves what it's satirizing in a mm. way in which I'm not entirely sure Spaceballs is. Like, I'm not sure Mel Brooks really loves sci-fi. And, and I'll leave it this way. I think I laughed harder at the very, very brief end of History of the World Part 1 where there's this Jews in space thing for like a minute um, than I did in most of Spaceballs. Dan, I will agree. Definitely mm-hmm. Galaxy Quest. It is an homage to the kinds of movies. It's sort of satirizing, you know, and also it's it loves those movies and yeah. it loves the people that love those movies. That's true. In some ways, it, that is, you can actually argue Galaxy Quest is honestly a groundbreaking movie in that yeah. it is the first movie I can think of of that kind, which was simultaneously 
you know, somewhat satirizing, but also doing so in a way that made it clear what the value of that sort of, of, of stuff was. And so And the people who love it. And I the think people that's who love a really it. important yeah. part of yeah. Galaxy Quest is that it 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 valorizes fandom yes. in a way that seems really natural now. Mm-hmm. But was not but at it, that time. No, absolutely. I agree with that. <laughs> now from David E. If you could change any event for all mankind style, so we could all be living now in the future. <laughs> Trademark. What would it be? <laughs> Ooh, I have I have what I think is a real obvious answer, but uh, you, all right, you go first because like I've been going first all this time. So oh, you should get it would go. be Reconstruction, Dan. Oh, I th- <laughs> okay. I wasn't expecting that. Like, <laughs> I would have like the South not rise again after the Civil War. <laughs> That's what I would do. Is I would have the U.S. government follow through on the lifting up of former slaves into an equal place in society. Wow. Okay. So like that was way going further back than I was expected. But that's actually a really good answer because you're right. And it, you know, or let me put this way: if re- Reconstruction is done right, then you know you've got eighty more years, ninety more years of an actual you know somewhat more racial equality in this country. So that's that's presumably good and presumably the country would be better off. I think I was thinking about it in terms of like the for all mankind time Okay. Span, I so also, like I mean, you could go back years. all the way to like do something about colonization and whatnot, but I just, I just, I went with U.S. history. Yeah, yeah. For, no, this one. for me, for U.S. history, my answer was no Three Mile Island incident. In that assuming... Oh, I know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I get in you. That, I know where you're going. Right. Assuming that Three Mile Island does not happen, that nuclear power turns out to be thought of as a viable, you know, alternative. Don't know if climate change would be as serious an issue. You said, or it would be much easier to manage because presumably a much greater fraction of the world's power and U.S. power would be coming from nuclear as opposed to other sources. And also, I would like to think that if it continued, then presumably and hopefully nuclear power would become more efficient. Another reason the nuclear power hasn't taken off is that it's actually a pretty expensive form of power to create, even though it's environmentally clean. But that's also because the regulatory requirements for it are a nightmare in no small part because of Three Mile Island. So in in the absence of a nuclear accident like that, it would have been interesting to see what the U.S. energy portfolio would look like. And I want to add something that we actually talked about in our For All Mankind episode, mm-hmm. of which there are two more coming, mm-hmm. which is I don't think the show properly deals with what the passage of the ERA would mean. Right. Like they just have it happen kind of in the background. Right. It was, I mean, it's one of, they do this, like with, they've got a number of different sort of alternative, you know, like Prince Charles marrying Camilla Parker Bowles for some reason, you know, which I was amused I, I think passing the ERA, for instance, I would be able to access reproductive health care in Texas, probably. <laughs> yes. We might have bodily autonomy actually passed, you know, into yeah. federal law. Yeah. Not just necessarily abortion access, but a bunch of other stuff that women. Right. <laughs> would probably be thinking about and i think a lot of other stuff too i just think the show that it's interesting to me that the show does seem to see that putting women into the space program would be a huge thing for equal rights right and it does lead to the passage of the era but the problem is you're right it doesn't trickle down more generally than that yeah although you could i mean in some ways just to push back a little bit i i do think that in seasons two and in season three it does sort of deal with that again, and we've talked about this before, in a, it, almost in terms of what by what it doesn't say, which is there is almost no sexism whatsoever 
after the first season. Like, you you don't see it in the show. There yeah. aren't women who are thwarted in terms of their careers. You know, there are women running a fair number of, of things that are going on. You know, so in that sense, it does, it has actually changed. It's just that it's not commented upon. That's a problem. You're, you are correct in that that's good pushback for the show for all mankind. Yeah. I will stick with the answer to this question. Okay. No, no, that's <laughs> totally fair. Yeah, yeah. This question yes, because that's, it that's would different. be a yes. huge, like, if, well, yeah. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> no. No. We're in agreement on this. That's totally fair. Totally fair. <laughs> okay. Now, William West. Who He's is got our, a bunch our, of questions. Our professional uh, space guy. Ooh. He has several questions. Okay. The first of which is, <laughs> would you rather fight one xenomorph alien-sized duck or a dozen duck-sized aliens? Um, oh, God, that's easy. One xenomorph alien-sized duck. Yeah, I'm going to go. Yeah, the duck. It's the duck. First of all, like, you know, if, if there is anything we have learned from the from the alien movies, it is that you're never going to kill one of those little aliens. Like, they're they're really tough. I mean, for God's sakes, one of them took out almost everyone in the Nostromo. And, you know, the other little ones, you know, in the second movie uh, also. You can distract a duck with bread. Yeah. Also, if it's just <laughs> one duck, I mean, like, just one anything, that's easier to kill. No problem with that. And also... Frankly, if the duck kills me, that's going to be a lot less painful than, you know, all those aliens going after me. So, yeah, that's an easy call, frankly. And, and then we have a programming suggestion mm-hmm. from William West, which is, would you be willing to consider doing Armageddon or Deep Impact sometime in late September? The NASA mission that's testing asteroid defense technology is scheduled to impact Dimorphos on September 26th, and it might be a nice topical sort of thing. He worked on Dart. He wants right. To, he, he wants to acknowledge that he has some bias. I got to admit, that's actually a pretty compelling argument. We might need to revisit the calendar to consider this. Which one would you rather do? <laughs> um, Armageddon. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> I do want to. I do want to do Deep Impact at some point. Movie? Oh, it's undeniably a better movie. That's not even. But it's not nearly as fun. And, and but we we would have more fun. Talking we're gonna have more fun talking about Armageddon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And we we love our big dumb movies. We love know? big dumb movies. Like that might be yeah. like the last. You know, I it, was gonna say we could do Bapril. Like, would that be Michael Bay? <laughs> oh, Bapril. <laughs> I like Vapor. That's good. But I, th- I think I think we have to do Armageddon. But we like this way. I think we need to do both of them at some point because Deep Impact right. is is definitely worthy of an episode. We should we could do a theme month of like planet destroying <laughs> shows. Yes, and that way we could do maybe like just the first few episodes of Battlestar Galactica since we've been trying to figure out yes. how to do how to do Battlestar Galactica. And now we are done with our show specific or at least content of the show's specific questions. We're now going to move to meta questions, which is questions about the behind the scenes of the podcast, because there's a lot that's going on. And (laughs) and clearly our listeners are very curious about this. Uh, So Anna, what is the first question in this category? What is your favorite non-genre movie? As in non-sci-fi genre movie? I think, I mean, I don't know, because okay. I, when I think of my favorite movies, actually a, a large proportion of them that aren't science fiction are like mysteries, like Chinatown is like mm. one of my favorite movies, like despite <laughs> problematic shit in it. Like it's such, a, it's such a great movie. Right. You know, I mean, All the President's Men is also, I guess, I, I, it's one of the few movies I own digitally. Oh, wow. Now I'm curious, do you like Spotlight as well? Because I have to admit, Spotlight has been recently a movie that I, it's been on cable and like, 
I will stop and watch it whenever I might have to do it. a rewatch because it is it. a really good like it, it is all I would argue it's as good as all the president's men and all ways. the president's men is such a fucking well-made movie it's yeah. like I also own alien <laughs> as, as a you know another movie that I watched just because the craft of it is so good yeah it's just so economical even though it's kind of long the scenes are so well done. The acting is so well done. My fa- it has one of my favorite shots in all movies, or mm-hmm. at least because it's sort of close to my heart because it's about journalism. Yeah. But that scene where they pull out all of the requests that the, that the, the White, White House, House has made for the library made. And, they, and that yeah. guy is like, do you really want all of them? You know, here, we got all of them. Yeah. And they sit down at the table to do that. And then there's a shot from overhead. And it pulls and back. It pu- and it shows you, you just get a sense of the scope of both what they're doing yeah. and the meaning of what they're doing. Right. It's such a wonderful like way. It's a showing and not telling in this yeah. such no, a Such a great way. So what about you? Actually, so I get a favorite non-genre movie. I'm trying to say, this, I want to make it very clear. I do not think this is the best movie. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm not yeah, either. Yeah. This is, yeah. It is that thing you do. I love wow. that thing you do. This is a Tom Hanks movie. It was it was the first movie directed by Tom Hanks. It came out in like 96 or 97. It's about a one-hit wonder in the 1960s. It stars Tom Everett Scott and Steve Zahn and Liv Tyler. And part of this is that my wife feels the same way. And like whenever we're like, if we come upon it, we just immediately watch the rest of it. It's a perfect little film. It's just the story of a half-life of a band that actually stumbles upon a hit. And also I have to admit part of it is that the song that thing you do which is like played six or seven times in the movie and is actually good enough so that you you're not irritated by it by the end was written by a college classmate of mine um, who is that i believe his name was adam davidson he was one of the band members of fountains of wayne uh, i was gonna say like i know that somebody did that music who's like an indie yeah. rock guy yeah it was fountains and of wayne that must be the person yeah yeah and it's you know i was sort of it's not like I you do it terribly well, but, but my yeah. like embarrassing fave. Not I'm not well, embarrassed about liking things. No, do, yeah. okay, not embarrassed, but like okay, the me. one that I know is not necessarily like a good movie. Yes, but let me hear it. Bridget Jones' Diary. Oh, Anna, I'm glad you were able to say that. <laughs> That's totally fair. <laughs> I feel like I've made progress as a person to be able to admit that I like a romance. Yes, movie. exactly. I think this is great. I didn't like. It I, is, it's a yeah. sweet movie. Like it's kind of problematic yeah. in retrospect and everything, you know. But it's so charming, and I, you know, Colin Firth is. Oh yeah, Colin Firth, and 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 uh, Hugh Grant is great in that. I mean, Hugh Grant is great. Yeah. I, I love Hugh Grant as a villain. Yeah, you know, it bears rewatching. It's very delicious. It's comfort viewing in a really yes, and that is how I feel really about nice that thing way. you do. Is I would add. So it feels like it's like a meringue. Yeah. That's like Bridget Jones' diary. Oh, it's like it's like a light and airy dessert. Related to this, so in a more recent film that also falls into this category again of not great but like literally comfort food is Chef. <laughs> With John Favreau, it was it was a small little movie he made where he plays like this celebrity chef who has a meltdown on Twitter and sort of has to build himself back up again and, and starts a food truck that does Cuban food. And first of all, I will say as a man, I identified with the fact that John Favreau wrote and directed this film, set it up so that his two paramours in the film are Scarlett Johansson and Sofia Vergara. Uh, <laughs> totally believable and, you know, whatever. But also the food in the film is outstanding. Now... Favorite other podcast? That's from Nate M42. So my confession here, Anna, is that I actually don't listen to a lot of podcasts. And the reason I don't is that for me, I, I might have said this before, 
whenever I've tried listening to a podcast, if I'm doing something else like cooking or folding laundry or something like that, what I inevitably find I do is that I tune out the podcast and I'll like, then I'll like actually hear something that's interesting. I'm like, oh wait, what was that? And then I have to rewind it constantly to figure out what I missed. And I, and then I get distracted again. And, and it's only if I'm going on a walk and like, that's the only thing I'm doing that I find it engaging. And I guess the answer to this, therefore, I have is I do like 538's podcast, their politics podcast. It's informative and, you know, right in my sweet spot in terms of like, I, I'm not someone who knows it, who studies or researches electoral politics, but I know enough to know what they're talking about. And so I learn a lot. What about you? I... Don't I don't know what a normal amount of podcast listening is. I should say that. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go out there. And I'm gonna say there is no such thing as a normal amount. You know, normal amount implies that there's an abnormal amount, and really, like, there's no judgment in terms of how many podcasts you listen to or don't listen. So, to. a lot of my favorite podcasts are in the explainer genre, uh, which I think it's like the long form journalism version of podcasts. Kind of, although it's like it's the the setup of, of these podcasts is someone has done a ton of research and is telling a guest in the studio the story of whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And the guest gets to be the audience surrogate and often somebody funny or clever. And it makes for it's like reading an article out loud and having a really smart person and like ask questions. Right. So it's like article. an inter, it's like a real lot. It's an interactive article. Yeah, it's an interactive article. Mm-hmm. So the shows that I love that it follow that format are behind the bastards. You're wrong about and maintenance phase behind the bastards is like the worst people in history. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. they just did actually like a four part series on Clarence Thomas, which is really interesting. <laughs> and not, <laughs> you can argue, but I think he fits. Um, yeah. <laughs> you're wrong about is kind of about moral panics. So they've done like satanic panic. They've done, I just finished re-listening to their Elian Gonzalez Mm -hmm. episode. And Elian Gonzalez is not actually representative for them because the story that most of us know is pretty accurate. Like we may not know all the details of what happened, but a lot of the times they tell, they they will retell the story like Vanessa Williams or actually the woman, Kitty Gervaisi, Kenny Genovese, the Kitty Genovese. Genevieve, which is the woman that was supposedly raped and all these people knew it and no one did anything. Mm -hmm. That's, there are lots of details that problematize that. Yeah. Uh, Number one, she was LGTB, I believe. Oh, okay. And a lot of people who saw it or knew about it were, and so there was a real hesitation about calling the cops. (laughs) Interesting. Not a good era for that. Yeah, fair so, enough. So, uh, and then maintenance phase does the same thing for diets and health fads. That is one of my wife's favorite podcasts. So, actually, that's good. It's a great know. podcast. Yeah, it's a really good podcast. Now, a very simple question: we don't have to spend time on, but I appreciate that it was asked mm-hmm. from Dan Brennan. Two spaces after period, or just one? <sighs> We're going to disagree on this, Anna. Yeah, it's two. It's one. It's two. It's one. It's one, and it's one so hard that when Dan gives me his scripts, I go through and do search and replace. It is two, <laughs> and I don't care if you or anyone else says that I'm wrong about this. Two is better. I'm just not gonna, you know. That that's it. How turns it is. out there is this is like a legit debate to yeah. the people who care about it. Like <laughs> I, I wanted to prove Dan wrong, so I did research, and it turns out. It wasn't when obvious I, that I was wrong. It wasn't in fact, obvious that he was wrong. <laughs> I might very well be right. <laughs> Which like I don't And thank you, like Anna, for acknowledging Slate, that. There's an article yeah. in the places you in the places you'd expect articles about this to be, which is Slate and the Atlantic. Right. <laughs> like, 
actually, I'm surprised that What's Wrong About hasn't done this yet. That would seem to be an obvious thing. You're wrong about it would, would seem to be the right. I think you should you should petition them to like do this po- do this category. Next question, also from Dan. What's on your work mix? What are you listening to? Um, I tend to listen if I if I am listening while I'm writing. It tends to be movie soundtracks. Hmm. And like, in other words, not words like, you know, that it's so it's easier. Yeah, for me same to here. So there's a couple that I like. I like the Breach soundtrack. Uh, that's a movie with um, Ryan Phillippe and Chris Cooper about Robert Hansen, uh, the FBI double, spot, uh, double agent. I like Spotlight, actually. It's a good soundtrack. Um, the Arrival. The Arrival. Michael Clayton is mm. one. And then if I'm feeling... Now that might be one of my favorite non-genre movies. Although, again, is it yeah. a thriller genre? Anyway. No, no. I, I, we share that, actually. Um, so in no small part, because there's a character in Michael Clayton that I identify with very strongly, who's the Sidney Pollack character. The, the, which sounds weird, but he's like he's the, the guy who like pretty much knows the score, but there are certain things he won't do. And... You know, like, I love when he says to Michael Clayton, when did you get so fucking delicate? Like, you know, and, and yeah. I appreciate that. And also, uh, if I'm feeling really spicy, I, this is a great soundtrack. It's the Tron Legacy soundtrack. Not the original, but the sequel. The sequel as a movie is not great. The soundtrack is amazing. I think Kraftwerk does it. And it's just really good. I am the same about working. I can't listen to music with lyrics. I've been on a lyric list music bender for a long time actually because music can make me like emotional (laughs) and it's hard to like curate a soundtrack for my life that like doesn't have any songs in it that won't make me think about stuff that i'm trying not to think about i'm hoping to re-engage with music very soon good for you but right now it's mainly like jazz soundtracks. I really like actually that guy, Olaf, whatever the guy that did the soundtrack for. Oh, the one that did the soundtrack um, for Arrival? Yeah. yeah this yeah, stuff yeah. is really good. I uh, like that kind of Icelandic haunting yeah. stuff. Also, really slight correction. Uh, the, the Tron Legacy soundtrack was not done by Kraftwerk. It's done by Daft Punk. I apologize for the error. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty bad. Yeah, sorry about that. No, I get where I, I get it. There's like a fft sound yeah, exactly. in both of them. Yeah. So <laughs> I believe Dan has another question, which is uh, how long is the raw recorded podcast as opposed to the highly processed episode that you listen to? And the answer, Dan, I'm glad you asked, is that it's 15 hours um, <laughs> because, you know, first we start <laughs> off with a Lincoln Douglas style debate to like, really <laughs> hone these points. You know, and then, of course, there's the reading of Robert's Rules of Order, and that can take a hot minute. And then we finally get to the button. No, I'm just kidding. I think probably the, like, never more than 90 minutes, and usually it's like an hour and 15, I think we usually get it done by. We we started out uh, Longer, I think. much much flabbier. Yeah. I don't really like that using that word, but that's <laughs> the word that comes to mind. Yeah. And we've gotten pretty streamlined about it, mm-hmm. and it's always a surprise to me because – Sometimes in a very good way, I feel like we've talked more than we have, which is to say, I feel like we've talked about a lot. Yeah. And then it turns out it really only took like an hour and 15 minutes, but mm-hmm. it feels like we covered a lot of ground. Yeah. Which is uh, good. But our aim for whatever reason is about an hour for the mm-hmm. finished podcast. I feel like that's all I want to ask of people. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> we are in agreement on that. Like there's not much more than an hour. It, it, you know, these are worth, these are 
fun conversations to have. But, you know, we assume our listeners are busy people and, and you know, we don't want to impose too much on them. Question from Trent Diamanti. These are all people that are really active on the Discord, by the way, and I feel like I know them and I really appreciate their asking questions. So mm-hmm. just shout out to our pals on the Discord. Yeah. Uh, Trent asks, what are your writing habits like? Do you try to get away from distractions when working on a book or article? Or is there some multitasking? Are there certain times of day you find more useful? Oh, this is interesting. So I can start, which for me, the answer depends entirely on the writing. And by this, I mean, I write a lot of different things. Like there, you know, when I was writing for Washington Post, that was a 600 word column. There are essays I will write for foreign affairs or for reason or something like that that are like close to 3,000 words. Then there's the peer-reviewed stuff. That's the stuff where like it can be up to 10,000 words. And then occasionally I'm writing a book. And those are all very different kinds of exercises. And so I would say for the first two or three, uh, yeah, there's media multitasking going on. And actually, unfortunately, for the fourth one, for the book writing, there is also very often at the very (laughs) beginning media multitasking there should not be um on, i don't know if you have you caught up on the sandman like the if you watched the, the bonus episode that dropped last i haven't week watched something? the bonus episode but oh okay because if, if you it do has something to do with writing yes the bulk of the episode is devoted to a writer who takes one of the fates hostage and or one of the muses hostage and and does some bad things and as a result is able to write but like you see him trying to write without the muse and it is the most painful 30 seconds i've watched because he like stares at the screen and then he just goes surfing and like you know it's like all the things that i'm sure you or i do if we're trying to actually avoid writing um but i would say that you know in terms of for me what useful things are frankly deadlines I'm actually pretty good about handing in stuff on time. And I, for those of you who are listening who are aspiring writers and want to know, you know, what, what are some, some tips? This might sound banal, but, like, hand stuff in on time. You know, that actually works, particularly at the outset. You don't want to be thought of as a problem. Um, and there's some value about this. And in terms of about times of day, I actually don't know about that. I don't think there's a time of day where I'm a better writer. For me, there are seasons of writing, though. This is going to sound weird, but in my academic work, I tend to find that during the spring and the summer, I will actually write new stuff, whereas in the fall and in the winter, I am better at revising, by which I mean I've taken whatever I've written and then I'm like honing it and, and getting The it season better. of growth and the season of attending. Yeah, yeah. But then uh, Reading. The, the last thing I will say is that when it comes to writing a book, you know, it's like trying to get momentum, trying to get momentum, trying to get momentum, trying to get momentum. And then there's the moment where I actually have it. And if I actually have some writing momentum when I'm writing a book, like particularly if I'm trying to finish it, I'm not going to lie, I'm a complete asshole to everyone because I don't want anyone to bug me. You know, like the days where I'm actually cranking out 5,000 words, you know, and like just continuing to write and continuing to write, it's like a, it's like a hitting streak in baseball. It You do nothing, you don't fuck with the streak. You just keep writing and like push everything off to one side. And those moments are rare for me, but God, I love them. What about you, Anna? Yeah, I can speak to that being true for me too. Uh, it's a, the flow state, you know, and we've talked, I think we talked about this on an AUA once. Yeah. What I have come to realize about that flow state is I think when people describe it or when it's described in literature, it makes it sound like it's a high of some kind. Yeah. And that's not, for me, right. exactly what it is. It's not necessarily that it feels good and pleasant. It's not that it feels pleasant. Right. 
It's just that it's completely engrossing. It's all consuming and it's ur- there's an urgency to it. Right. Um, and it's it's not that I feel like I want to do it. Like that's why it gets, it's so hard to get to in a way yeah. because it's not like it's doing drugs, which <laughs> you feel great. It's like it's more the, the feeling that I always have when I'm in that place, the best I can uh, equate it to is solving a puzzle or mm-hmm. a crossword. Like that's way my mean. mind works. Is I, I can't and I can't not finish it. I have to figure it out. I have to like hmm. I won't feel good until I've like put the pieces where they're supposed to be. And a lot of times for me, writing is about putting pieces together. Right. I mean, for me, writing is always about can I get the idea that is perfect in my brain? Mm-hmm. And does it look the same way on the page? But I, yeah. I I agree with you. It's not quite a you know it's not quite akin to a a drug high but i will say that for me at least when i have gotten over the hump in other words when i have written enough so that i realize that i can see the finish line i do get a wave of euphoria it's or not you maybe euphoria is not the right word a sense of okay you just like you just done the hardest part you know, you still have work to do, but like, but now it's conceivable that you will finish this. And that is a wonderful feeling. And it's not something uh-huh. I always have. I don't know. I don't know if I ever have that feeling. Cause, yeah. um, I mean, I'm happy to get it done, but uh, so first of all, I'll get back to the sort of the more granular part of this question, mm-hmm. which is I, um, you know, I am a recovering perfectionist, <laughs> which means I'm something of a procrastinator because it never feels quite right. I, it's, I have trouble starting and not knowing where I'll finish. Oh, see, it's fascinating. This is where blogging for me really cured me of that because blogging for me was a contingent form of writing. And once I recognized, I'm going to get stuff wrong maybe. And it's not like I do, I, I'm going to be casual about it. But like, Oh, that's huge. You know, I mean, it's, if, it's you can, if I can fool myself, and I'll yeah. talk about the way that I fool myself. So oh, there's okay. a couple of things. I have hacks to yeah. like deal with my perfectionist brain. One of them is to intentionally multitask. Mm-hmm. which is to say like I'll put on a podcast and tell myself I just have to write like an outline mm-hmm. and then you know three hours later <laughs> <laughs> and it's 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 a way of like tricking my waking brain yeah. you know my top level consciousness into not paying full attention so that I access some part of my brain that's not obsessive about getting it perfect that's good and and once I'm in that mode, by the way, once I'm once I'm writing, I, I used to tell people I hated writing, and it's true that I put it off and everything. But it's actually something my my therapist pointed out, which I don't hate writing. I am. It is just part of my process that I have to kind of know where I'm going. It is yeah, really is hard for yeah. for me to start writing if I don't if I don't have any idea. Yes, you know, if it's fair. if it's not there, and that does sometimes push me up to a deadline. <laughs> That's true. And also it, it raises another point, which is a lot of people, when you talk about writing, assumes requires you must be at a keyboard composing prose. Right. And at least for me, you're the one that pointed out that that's not true. That's not true. That. No, it's yeah. that's not the only thing involved with writing. I mean, there are times where like I'm working it out of my brain. Like, how am I going to organize this? What am I writing about? As you say, what is the thesis? How am I going to structure it? I could do that anywhere. I don't have to be in front of the computer to do that. And there are also times where I have a great idea and I desperately need to get it on the computer before I forget it. But like yeah. writing is not just something in which you are staring at a screen. It, there's a lot of aspects to it. My other hack is a classic one. Mm-hmm. The one with like listening to a podcast or having the TV on is not something I've heard other people do. Mm-hmm. But the one that's kind of classic is to 
the classic is tell your mom what your story is about. <laughs> yeah. The what I do often <laughs> is to um, write a letter to my editor. <laughs> oh, very clever. <laughs> because sometimes that winds up being the first draft. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> and sometimes it doesn't. But I'll, my addendum to the always meet your deadline mm-hmm. is always be in communication with your editor. Yes, that's good. Because if you're yeah. not going to miss your de- if you're not going to hit your deadline, that can be okay. Like maybe I shouldn't say this, but that can be okay. Mm-hmm. Just don't fucking disappear. Yeah, that's you to, know? never ghost your editor. That's never bad. ghost, and always try to communicate something. If it's just right. like for, I have turned in sometimes pretty shitty stuff and been like, this is all I have right now. Mm-hmm. But I wanted you to see that I have something. Right. You know, and that's a start. I actually beginning my career, I edited more than I wrote. And I will tell you that it having something Mm -hmm. was what relieved me. (laughs) As long as I was like, well, I can work with this. I can rewrite, you know, I can rewrite this myself if need be. Mm -hmm. But I'm not like staring. You're not staring at a blank screen. Yeah. I'm not staring at a blank space in the magazine. Like I was an editor at magazine, like actual physical magazines. And where you had a whole, like there's a hole. Like if you don't have a story come in, (laughs) there is a place in the magazine. That story was supposed to run (laughs) (laughs) and you are going to have to fill it somehow. So we could probably do a whole fucking podcast about our writing. Yeah. We clearly both have thought about it a lot, but have y'all made any literary or media pilgrimages to Stephen King's gravestone? For example, ha ha ha. I assume that is an intentional joke. Uh, <laughs> I'll go first, which is okay. to say, not that I can think of. I'm not like a hugely like sentimental person about that kind of thing. Mm. I think. I don't know how I feel about pilgrimages. Well, also, like, so for me, part of this is the fact that like, I, I think I can answer yes, there's a couple things I've done, but it wasn't necessarily intentional. So, for example, I've been to the Protestant Cemetery in Rome, and that is where John Keats and Percy Shelley are buried. And so that's interesting to go to on occasion. Um, and I grew up outside of Hartford, and there's the Mark Twain house in Hartford, which is where he was in the last years of his life. But that was like a high school field trip, and so, like, that's not you know pilgrimage in the sense of like is there a writer who i would desperately love to go visit their house if it's preserved or something i don't know the problem is is that i like nonfiction authors way more than i like fictional you know fiction writers and i'm not sure any of those are going to have their house preserved i am not sentimental about that kind of stuff the pilgrimage and houses and stuff Mm -hmm. i if i visit things this sounds so morbid, but gravestones in are in cemeteries are kind of interesting to mm-hmm. me as a place to go and commune with the memory of someone. There's a state cemetery here in Austin where like Barbara Jordan is buried. And I, mm. I went there for other, for actually a writing class that I was helping to teach, mm-hmm. but it was night, nice, you know, like, and, and Richards is buried there. And they're two incredibly important women, in, in Texas history and in, in American history. And it just felt good to, the, you know, the term pay your respects to be like this person. I'm acknowledging the importance of this person by being at this specific yeah. place. Yeah. Like, I think that 
but I can't see myself planning a trip around that. Kind of right. And I'm the same way. Like, you know, we, I, w- I went to the Protestant cemetery in Rome because we were traveling in Rome and like this was something to do. But yeah, yeah. It's, it's I think I'm with you on that. Um, I am a big fan of this next question also from Trent. Mm-hmm. What traits did y'all have as a kid that now serve you well in your careers? <laughs> I wonder if we're going to have similar answers. Um, yeah. So I guess I have two answers to this. Uh, the first is monomaniacal focus and the ability to tune out everyone else speaking, um, <laughs> which is, you know, I used to go on vacation a lot with my extended family and I have a loud family and I gradually learned how to read while tuning out what other people were doing. And that ability to focus really comes in handy when you are an academic, trust me, not a minor skill. And I guess the other, this isn't that big of a deal, but like as a kid, I was a motor mouth. I could talk really fast and both for the podcast, but also when you're teaching that can occasionally come in handy when you've got to like exposit a fair amount of material in a short period of time. What about you, Anna? Same for number one. Yeah. And it's funny because you connect that with being in a loudmouth family. Right. Whereas you, with, for and you, I connect that with being an only child. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there, pretty much anyone who's going to get that focus is going to find some reason for it. Yeah. Well, I, I just was really into my own world. I mean, this is mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I fell in love with, with science fiction and fantasy yeah. is that like, just to be perfectly frank about it, like my childhood was not so great. <laughs> which is why I'm writing a memoir, (laughs) you know, available in 2024 from Random House. (laughs) And it, you know, my mom, my mom was an alcoholic and uh, we moved all the time. So I didn't have a lot of friends and I loved just being in another place in my head, Mm -hmm. you know, like I also could do that with TV, which I think seemed less cool to my parents. (laughs) But I think it's actually the same thing. Yeah. Like, I remember one time realizing I literally hadn't heard them calling my name. <laughs> like, and realizing, like, that was something different, yeah. you know, like, that I was so inside my head, I had blocked out oh, my wow. mom yelling for me. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, like, you'd probably done that, too. Like, oh, it, yeah, it, I have. And it's and interesting. I'd I, say, it, I was just saying it's interesting because that is something else I have in common, which is it, it not the I wasn't an only child. And I would say my home life was probably reasonably happy. But we also moved around a lot as a kid. I, mm-hmm. I lived in nine different places by the time I was 10. And so that might also like be why I, I you know, like developing my own world. Yeah. And then the other thing I would say, and I bet this is something for you, too, but you maybe just didn't mention or think of it, which is monomaniacal focus. On a thing, not just like monoclonal focus on reading. Oh, but like yeah, yeah, yeah. Obsessiveness yes. about a, oh, a topic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I had that. that yeah, that's absolutely true. And yes. for me also, and this is helpful for a journalist, and maybe why journalism wound up being my calling more than academia, it's serial obsessiveness. <laughs> yeah. I get obsessed with like a thing, and I just, I just consume all wrench myself in it right. it's it's like the intellectual form of binging and yeah. sometimes binging yeah you know i just get super super interested in one specific thing and then not so much like i remain interested in it like but you're it's ready to interest, move on. yeah but then i find something else you know actually no Anna, i i think i am like that it's just that no. maybe like there's an academic version of of doing that so like you know, there's always a danger, and and obviously that's really good for writing articles. Sorry, yeah. that's the connection. But no, but it's it, there's a <laughs> there is a real danger when, or not danger, but like 
some academics, you know, are write a dissertation and then their entire career just continues to be writing on that topic. And to, to some extent, that's true for me because, like, my dissertation was on economic sanctions, and I continue to write about that periodically. But I was bound and determined after my dissertation not to write about that for a while um, because I wanted to do something new. And, you know, one of the things I always like about what I get to do is that occasionally I'll just pick a topic that I find interesting and research the hell out of it. And um, research is the best part. Yes. I know that that's something like, I know that you share that. Yes. And that's another thing that academics yep. and journalists are like on. I always make, I can always make another phone call. I'm I making my, read another book. I can always. <laughs> listeners, you can't see this, but I'm making the Judd Nelson fist raised at the end of the breakfast club show of solidarity <laughs> on that one. Yep. Yep. And also there are books that I, that I get for research that I don't wind up reading, but, uh, <laughs> I'm looking at some of them right now. Yeah. Actually, like what I'm looking at my shelf right now is an example of my obsessiveness. And I haven't read all of these books, but like I two different things. I got really interested in environmental sensitivities not too long ago, like people who develop the um, chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Or toxic and shock or something. Or to yeah, or uh, long-term uh, chronic Lyme yeah. disease. Mm -hmm. In part because these are diseases that are not, not every doctor thinks they're a thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> toxic shock yes but and i'm just very interested in that and like i'm looking at like i have several books on it i've read like half of them <laughs> and i do want to get and i probably will get to the other ones but there was just a period in which i was like that is what i wanted to read about yeah and so i bought a ton of books about yeah. it okay this is a continuing to in the same vein what are some things y'all read or watched as callow youths that knocked you on your ass galvanized you in some way and i will go first just because i feel like we should move along yes and i've already mentioned it so i don't have to talk about it mm -hmm. which is okay i haven't there's one thing i haven't mentioned mm -hmm. one is narnia series oh. it just incredibly formative for me and someday i'll write whole pieces about it mm -hmm. and then the other is actually the husker du song new day rising which is the first punk song i remember hearing <laughs> that was not like catchy Ramones, which, you know, Ramones is like pop punk. Ramones is like bubblegum, yeah. really, mm -hmm. you know. And a lot of the Sex Pistols is too. Right. New Day Rising is like a different kind of music. Mm -hmm. It's basically shouting the lyrics New Day Rising <laughs> with like really <laughs> crunchy guitars. But I remember, it's not like that's my favorite song, but I remember realizing, oh, like there's something that isn't pop music. Mm-hmm. That's different, yeah. That, that's different and that can be meaningful because it sounds different. Right. Bob Mould writes a lot of pop songs. He's awesome. But just that particular song was like sort of shifted the way that I think about music. So I have three answers to this, though, but I'll be quick about it. The first, and this is trite, but it really is the first novel that I read where I just couldn't put it down. And it was Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. Hmm. Um, I mean, I was a reader before this, but like I would, you know, it, it, I would read a book for school, but because I had to, and I had to read this for school, but like I was reading this during my lunch break. I was reading this on the bus. I just, I couldn't, I had to finish that book. Um, and so that was really compelling. Also, I guess it's a sci-fi thing. It's, uh, Douglas Adams, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. I just loved reading that. And it was just Douglas Adams sense of play in those books are, are delightful and I really like that. And then finally, uh, a comic, which is Bloom County by Berkeley Brethren. I can't see your opus. Oh, he's behind you. Yep. There's opus. There's opus. Yes. I have an opus. 
in my Zoom window. But I, I fucking love Bloom County. I mean, I've read like I've read Doomsbury and Calvin and Hobbes and all those, but Bloom County was the one that just I think was closest to my comic sensibilities. And during the eighties, it was a it was just a delightful thing to read, uh, and I'm always grateful for it. You know, I could also like, I, it's funny, now I'm, you're reminding me of things, because also for me, uh, this is a cliche, mm-hmm. but on the road. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which was actually really important for two reasons. One is that I was like, oh, this is a really cool kind of writing. And you can, it's almost like New Day Rising. Mm-hmm. It was actually around the same time, too, where it's like, oh, you can write in a way that doesn't be- obey the rules. Right. You know, and that it can be really great and passionate and communicate a bunch of stuff. Um, <laughs> my second realization about On the Road was a sort of important one, but sad, which is that I realized <laughs> I had an insight about systemic, you know, patriarchy, uh-huh. which is that I could never do this or I can't do it safely. Right, like right, the realization right. yeah. that like oh, some some dudes, yeah, some, like, read on dude, the road dude, and are like, yeah. I'm going to do this, yes. and then I did it, and then my first thought was, I want to do this too, and then it was like, oh no, I can't because I might get raped. <laughs> and saying that out loud because I want our male listeners to realize, like that is the thought a thought that women have. It's not just like it isn't safe. The mm-hmm. isn't safe is code for you. I might raped. get raped. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I just remember that being like an important. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like I did, wasn't safe before, but just this idea that like, oh, there are things I can't do because of your gender. because of my woman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So oh, fair enough. Anyway, <laughs> on that note, we have a couple more questions yes. we could we could go through here. Moving on, just a couple more questions. These are kind of still meta questions mm-hmm. from Dan Drennan, who distinguishes himself on the Discord by not being a moon. Dan, not a moon, Brennan, because sometimes that we've speculated, Dan, that you are a moon. <laughs> Fair enough. When did you know you wanted to do your day job? Oh, um, I can tie that to current events, actually, um, which is to say I knew I wanted to do my day job in 1994 in Ukraine, in Donetsk of all places. So I was in grad school. I had uh, gone to grad school straight from undergrad, and I was sort of passed all my comprehensive exams and wasn't sure what I wanted to write my, my dissertation about. So there was a program called Civic Education Project that allowed one to teach in either the former Warsaw Pact or former Soviet Union, um, teach what you knew and also like help with curricular form and so on and so forth. And I thought that was an interesting way to spend a year. So I taught economics in Donetsk that year. And at this point, I knew I wanted to get the PhD, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to go work for the government or like do a policy stuff or become an academic. And weirdly, most people who decide to become academics do so for the research, and I like doing research as well. But the experience of teaching in Ukraine, and I'm teaching in English to students for whom English is maybe their second language and frankly their third language probably, and they're struggling to understand it. And I remember in the spring semester I was teaching a point about economics, and I was trying to connect it to another point that I had made earlier in the class. And there was this student in the class who, she wasn't the brightest student, but she worked hard. She was really trying to focus. And it was clear that she had one of these epiphanies about where I was going with this, like just before I got there. In other words, I actually saw the student learn something. And that was euphoria. That was the greatest feeling I ever felt, you know, in in some ways. And I realized like, that's awesome. If I can do that, you know, 
for a living. That's a good job. And so I think that was when I realized that I think I, that I knew I wanted to be a professor and maybe occasionally write for a policy audience rather than get my PhD and then go work for a think tank or try to go work for the government or what have you. And so that, that was the moment where I knew that teaching was what I actually liked doing. What about you, Anna? I'm going to answer this question in a maybe slightly unexpected way, which is to say, I honestly can't oh. remember not wanting to be a writer. Like I mm-hmm. it, probably because of my mom, my mom was a, a writer. I'm going to have to be, like, she didn't get but a lot published in her lifetime, but right. that is what she wanted to do. And so it was something that was always mm-hmm. a part of my life. Actually, I hope I haven't told this story too many times on the podcast, but one of the things to just illustrate how important the Narnia Chronicles were, I remember one probably summer, again, probably just moved, uh, I created a Narnia newspaper. Aww. I think it was called the Narnia Chronicle. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. And to this day, I'm really proud of it, really proud of this, this one thing I remember putting in it. Mm-hmm. Actually, I remember a few things, but I remember... Up in the corner, mm-hmm. I had the weather forecast. It was cold. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think oh, I had like you know like you know fawn spotted in forest or right. something. You know, so I always I always wanted to be a writer. What I'm gonna I'm gonna take this question towards is more recent turn in my career, which is to talk about mental health, mm-hmm. sobriety, kind of bringing more of myself mm-hmm. to what I do, which I, it somehow sometimes feels like I've always have, cause I've always written from very like personally passionate way. Like mm-hmm. I've always had a lot of passion for what I write and been, you know, transparent about that. Yeah. But to write about specifically about these issues, mental health, sexual violence, all that is doing my podcast uh, the crooked with friends like these podcast. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you the specific moment, but I am going to get emotional, which is, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of classic, but it's a little like with you, like hearing from people mm-hmm. that I'd made a difference for, yeah. like, you know, a few times people writing to say that they had gotten sober or, or try to, you know, started their sobriety journey. Oh, wow. Because of something that said, that's amazing. I remember this one time, this is, not the only time, but this is the time that's like the most kind of cinematic, I guess. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I was interviewing this guy. I'm going to call him a kid because he's in his 20s. Mm-hmm. But he had written a book, actually, a book worth reading. It's definitely a first book. I'm trying not to. I, I just want to say because it's, it's all him. He's putting himself in this book. It's right. a memoir about his family. His brother was schizophrenic and murdered their mother. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a tough book. Yeah. And I was his very first interview. On his book tour. And I was super aware of that. And I felt good about the interview, you Mm -hmm. know, and I and and kept him on because I kind of wanted to be like, so this is something you're going to be doing. Are you going to like to, you know, yeah, are things going to be okay for you? And I I, I don't know, maybe it's presumptuous of me, but like, Mm -hmm. I wanted to just get him ready for what was going to be probably like emotionally, like a hard journey for him, you know, Mm -hmm. and we had to talk about it and he, you know, 
was actually very like appreciative and he pre- he told me that mm-hmm. and then he said and by the way i'm 60 days sober Ooh. and listening to your podcast helped me make that decision oh that's pretty awesome and it turned out he'd gone to listen to my podcast because he knew he had this interview coming up oh interesting yeah that's great so that is a, a good place to end, Dan. I that's a really <laughs> emotional place to end on. I think that's a perfect place to end. I want to say, oh, my little dinosaur is piped up. <laughs> I also want to say that we have gotten at least one letter about this podcast being important for someone getting through a tough time in their lives. Mm-hmm. Which, all right, I'm trying to say something here, kitten. Can you hear the kitten? No. No. Okay. We've also gotten a letter from someone about this podcast making a difference in their lives. And that, of course, I love, too. And that's almost better. (laughs) It's so unexpected. Yes. But lovely. And Mm -hmm. other people, I feel this way about other podcasts. So I feel good about saying it about this podcast, which is I often feel like the podcasts I listen to, those are my friends. Yeah. You know, like it's listening to a conversation with my friends. So, y'all, I hope that you feel that way too and thank you to all of our friends who asked questions for providing the uh the topics of conversation for this week we had more questions i will save them for a future mailbag dan yes that'll be fair and until then keep this channel open for more